Uh, today's scripture reading is taken from Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. For, welcome back. Thanks. At least one person is happy about it. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg. I'm uh, one of the co-lead pastors here. So if you've been around at all, uh, you'll know Sam. And don't worry, I didn't. he's not like locked in a closet or something uh, this morning. He's actually homesick, unfortunately. So no, I did not do anything nefarious. Uh, that is not why he's, he's not here. And I am. I'm just back from uh, sabbatical. So, and it is uh, good to be back with you. And uh, so, I wanted to start uh, today simply by taking the chance to say uh, thank you. Thank you for the way that you care for your pastoral team, and that you have a sabbatical policy and you allow us sabbaticals. Thank you for the ways that you've cared for me and for my family. Specifically, uh, this uh, community has been a home uh, for all four of us. It is a home for all four of us, and the gift of rest and play together over these past four months is something we are deeply thankful and, uh, and grateful for, so thank you. Now, that being said, my family also might be deeply thankful 
for me not to be around the house all the time anymore. But uh, no. <laughs> the timing coinciding with going back to school, you know, just is perfect. Anyway. This is my uh, third Sunday back after this four-month sabbatical. And I must say, well, it is wonderful to see you all and to uh, be together with you. Uh, getting back into the rhythms and the disciplines it has been a challenge, I'm not going to lie. And I feel like my uh, pastoral muscles have atrophied. <laughs> that preparing for this sermon was a little bit like trying to lift weights after having just sat on a beach reading books for a few weeks straight. But whether it's returning to work after a break or simply living into the challenges of life, I think most of us know that life is not simply about getting to a point where you are comfortable and coasting, but that there will always be uphill climbs, the need to strengthen our muscles, to dig in deep, to tune up our equipment. My father-in-law, Jeff, has an expression uh, that he says something, it's like 10% of life is coasting downhill and the 90% is uphill. <laughs> which I think has some uh, wisdom to it. Um, which brings me to a story that I'd like to share. Those of you who know my wife, Monica, and her family, they know that they are, um, let's say, um, active family. <laughs> and people who are laughing that know them is because they, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't, active is like a sp uh, minimizing <laughs> their active uh, activity. You know, like they all, there are multiple, many of them have competed in world-level athletics in multiple different sports. That's, that's the kind of active that they are. You know, Jeff once scored, this is 20 years ago, he scored a goal while having a heart attack. This is the, the kind of activity that this family has. A number of years back, Monica decided she might as well try her hand at cycling. And so she signed up to do a 50-mile race for charity which is just over 80 kilometers. And preparing for this, of course, requires a fair amount of intentionality. It requires personal sacrifice and discipline on her part. She needed to keep her overall fitness level up, but she also needed to make wise choices about eating habits and acquire a bike, of course, that was optimal for such a race, as well as to make sure that it was tuned up properly and in working order for the, the day of. And on top of all of this, she needed to actually do training for the race, <laughs> right? None of that is actually the physical training, which meant she needed to be disciplined about getting up earlier than normal, putting in long hours away from family, uh, many kilometers to repair the whole of her being. And as all athletes know, it isn't just body, but it's heart, mind, and spirit, and soul. So the day of the race came, uh, and for the first 40 kilometers, uh, for, um, I should say 40, or 40 miles, were going pretty well. She was feeling pretty good about it, even though you know, it did require a deep resolve to pedal on, until the last quarter of the course took the riders up a long, steep climb. And this steep climb is 11 kilometers long. <laughs> Already exhausted with much of her being spent on the course, the riders and Monica had to dig down deep for a long period of time. I don't even know how long it takes to go up an 11-kilometer hill, but 
So though she had trained and though she had been disciplined and she had sacrificed in her preparations for the ride, it wasn't simply a question of staying the course and riding it out. It demanded giving all of her all. It demands us giving all of our all. And I think Monica is okay for me to say this, but this hill was kicking her batushka. She was giving everything she had left in her to, move, to keep moving, to push up this hill. Her legs were burning. Her lungs were burning. Her mind and her heart were telling her that she wouldn't make it. And her heart was saying to give up hope. Out of breath and out of resolve, she was about to stop and get off her bike. And at that precise moment, pulling up beside her was a car driven by Kristen and good friends of ours and their family. And our daughters, Chloe and Nev, are in the car with the windows down, cheering out, you can do it, mommy. You've got this, mommy. And I think one of the cheers was also, mommy, I found my purse. But, you know, they're they small at the time, so you, you take what you get, right? But, and that encouragement and that support and cheer, she was literally about to, to unclip her feet. And that moment gave her cheer and support enough that it enlivened the core of her being. It released in her what she needed to persevere, to go beyond her own inner strength, and to crest the hill and to continue to the finish line. This is what Anita read for us in Hebrews 12. Persevering through the race as we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on from the sidelines. I could probably stop there, but as you know, I'm not going to. So let's pause and pray. God, as we begin to look more deeply at this passage, Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, as we look into your scriptures, may you, the living word, dwell in us by your Holy Spirit to draw our eyes to you and to you alone. Amen. Now, looking at Hebrews 12 and 13 overall, it appears that there's two big different ideas if, if, uh, we, were, if we were able to, to, to hear the passage read. It seems like there's two ideas. There's this kind of race thing and Jesus, uh, and then there's this whole discipline uh, section, which seems like a kind of a weird disconnect. Um, and, and many translations of the Bible will separate them as such, as if there are these two ideas. But I would actually, I, I mean, I would argue, but obviously uh, it's not just me. I did check out what other people think on this. And that it isn't actually two big ideas, but that it is one main theme that runs throughout this whole passage. And I did say that runs, it was an intentional pun, but not meant to be funny. Just, you know, super smart, as you know that I am. You know, I got to earn points back. I've been away for four months. You got to remember how, you know, just brilliantly funny I am. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding, obviously. But this, so running throughout this thing, including this discipline section, is this image of a race. And perhaps more specifically than simply a race, it is an image of an athlete training and persevering through the race. So the author of Hebrews who is writing largely to followers of Jesus who, though they were actually Jewish, uh, in, uh, that they lived submersed in Greek and Roman culture, something we call Greco-Roman culture. 
So naturally, this author throughout the book is using Greek concepts that, the, that everyone would understand. Same way if one of us writes a letter to some, a friend encouraging them in the faith, we're going to talk about things that are relevant to our culture and use metaphors. This, this, this author does this throughout it. And this first imagery, which is actually through this whole section, is this image of Olympic Games. You can almost picture this whole passage taking place in an Olympic stadium, both as the racetrack surrounded by the crowds, but also as the training ground. Not dissimilar with our culture's obsession with sports, Greek culture had an exalted status of sport and athletes. I mean, that's where the Olympics comes from. The metaphor of running a race where athletes would enter into this great stadium with crowds of people cheering would have been one that everyone would have been able to picture to picture. And though, like most every biblical writer, the author of Hebrews has used images of priests and sacrifices and heroes of the faith, these metaphors are used not just as something that was relatable and understandable, but they were used to show that Jesus' ways in God's kingdom are actually vastly different than the images and metaphors that are being used. And Jesus is vastly better than the images and the metaphors that are being used. And we see this theme of Jesus being greater than uh, continue. So let's read uh, again Hebrews 12, uh, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So Sam spoke last Sunday, um, right before Hebrews 12, is Hebrews 11, and uh, the writer had been talking about all of these heroes of the faith who had gone before. People who had put their confidence in something they had hoped for and, assur- and they, who had an, an assurance of something that they did not see. And so they lived in faith, journeying into all kinds of unknowns and risks. And yet they never actually received this promise in their, in their lifetime. They are the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 starts with. <laughs> The people who fill the stands cheering us on. That's who this is. And in contrast to your average stadium of fans, and I think as we know most, the average stadium of fans, picture it, is usually like a mixture of people who, you know, simply, some simply enjoy the sport and they want to cheer on their favorite team or whatever. But most people have never actually or could never actually play sport at that high level. Most of the the, the stands are filled with people who cannot and do not perform at this level, along with a myriad of fans who think they know better than the athletes. We all know these people, especially if you're on any social media and you like sports. There are lots of people who spend hours criticizing and running commentary and, and putting down uh, coaches and athletes uh, as if they could actually do the job <laughs> better. But this is not the type of crowd that the race we're in is. In contrast to this, 
Or perhaps even better, of course, than this type of crowd, this cloud of witnesses cheering us on are those who have already run the hard race of faith. They aren't people who just sat on the sidelines critiquing from a a couch while holding a beer. They have run this hard race of faith. They know what it is like. They have endured suffering and exhaustion of disciplined training and pushing through to the end. And perhaps even more significant than this is the fact that this race is not a competition. That it's not competing against one another. And so everyone in the crowd, from everyone in the crowd to the athletes who are, are all on the same side. Well, I find it interesting, and we're not going to get, but Hebrews, the last verse before chapter 12, says, by faith, oh, I just flipped too many pages here. Therefore, these are commended for their faith. None of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that together they would be made perfect. So this audience, this crowd, is actually dependent on us finishing for them to even receive the promise. So they're not only they're on our side, well, they're on our side, and they, we are wrapped up in this thing together. For them to receive the promise includes and requires us So they're cheering us on, not for competition, but for joy, for shared life in this hard race of faith. They're not judging others by performance or technique or by level of faith or mistakes that have been made along the way, but simply wanting nothing more than to see others finish the race to reach the goal. And if this huge crowd of people who know how hard it is to live by faith, encouraging us, isn't enough. It gets even better. Because there before us at the finish line is Jesus himself. The one who not only gave us faith and who works in us to perfect our faith, but who himself has run this race. Verse 2 again. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One thing I find interesting here, the author of Hebrews does not even mention the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. That's something we tend to be somewhat more obsessed with. When we talk about the cross, we're often thinking about how battered and physically hard this was. But here the author doesn't have any interest in the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross at this point. Here, what Jesus endured was the shame of the cross. Not unlike our culture today, Greco-Roman culture of Jesus' day, honor and shame were everything. They were the main motivations for, for everything. What people thought about you, your reputation and status based on that reputation, was everything. It was extremely important. And on that cross, suffering a humiliating death, Jesus' death was extremely shameful. It was the most shameful, embarrassing, low-level thing that you could do. And it was reason for everyone to look on him with shame and without honor. But Jesus didn't only endure that shame, he scorned it. After enduring this great opposition, not only from the world, but from his very own people, 
as a result of disregarding of what people would say and think about him. And it's because of this that he was raised up to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. The one who is greatest will be least, and the one who is least will be greatest. And it is this, is in this that our hope and strength can be found as we seek to live as people of faith in a world that looks on our faith with shame and with opposition. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, who has already gone before us, who waits for us at the finish line, but who also runs with us through every valley and climbing hill. Keeping our eyes fixed on him while being cheered on by those who have gone before us. We will find the strength to not grow weary and to lose heart. And though as we read in this passage, the strength and hope and faith isn't going to simply be coasting down a hill. So as anyone who's ever trained as an athlete will know this very well. But I think so has anyone who's ever had to do physio therapy after an injury or surgery. If you want your arm or your leg or whatever it was to be able to function, you need to persevere through grueling strength training exercises. Most of the time, you won't even feel like it's making any difference at all, but you need to persevere through the pain and the discipline and do the work. You need to be disciplined by another person, a physiotherapist, who will painfully cheer you on through it, even as they are making you go through it. I think it's true of anyone who spent hours sitting with an instrument, taking lessons, playing the same bar, two-bar phrase a hundred times, and still not quite getting it. Anyone who's had to study for an exam or write a long paper or write a sermon after four months. Oh, we had that get in there. Sorry, I'm projecting. Anyone, who, if anyone who's ever had to dig in deep, which I imagine is every one of us in this room, because the only one of us in this room that hasn't had to yet is Jeremy's son, but he's not in this room now anyway. And he's a year and a half, so he has had to dig in deep actually by this point at some point. It's hard and grueling, and sometimes you don't feel like it for, and feel like there's no real purpose or benefit, or at least you question it. But you know if you don't press on, you will never mature or be strengthened. All of us who've had to work hard know this, and again, I think this is everyone in this room. We go much further when we have support, when we have someone pressing us on, a physio or a personal trainer or a teacher or a friend. In the Greco-Roman world, when this letter was written, the predominant philosophy is education was a picture of instruction and training. I mean, it was young men. That's why we see son language in this passage. It was a patriotic, so male-focused society. And so the father was responsible for the training and the, uh, the instruction of the male children. One thing I think is cool about this passage is that if you were adopted and you weren't actually the, in their thought, weren't actually the, a son, the father did, wasn't responsible for actually training you. So you'd be a son, but not really a son. Whereas here, the father, we are those who are being disciplined, is hopeful and beautiful because we are full children. We are, are full-on, authentic children of God. Uh, and so this is why this, this uses father 
and son imagery. So for us, we can read it as parent and child because in our society, hopefully most of us, the father and a mother or your, your, your parents, whether that is a guardian or your birth parents or who it is, the person who is raising you, the people, person or people who are raising you are responsible uh, uh, for loving you and for raising you and for teaching you and instructing you. So in this predominant, in this Greek uh, understanding of instruction and training in the values and behaviors of culture, the training was a holistic thing. It sought to cultivate the mind and the body and the morals and the spirit. It was all of who you are, not simply your brain. And the word for this is paideia in Greek. And it is the word that the author of Hebrews uses here in 12, 5 to 10, multiple times. It's the word that is discipline. It's the same word we read other places in the Bible, most commonly known, 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's the word training. So it isn't even the reproof or the correction word. It is the training word. And here we translate it as disciplining. Part of that is, is because they're quote, the author is quoting an Old Testament, which had been translated from Hebrew into Greek. And so the author is quoting a Greek version, and he's taking the words from it. And so many of us, when we read something like Hebrews 12, we read like verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. When we read that, we tend to have a picture of discipline where God is like standing there with a big stick right? Waiting for us to make a mistake so he can hit us with it. We have all of these pictures of human discipline that is kind of harsh and hurtful. But we need to get rid of this picture of God because that is not the kind of father that God is. Verse 9, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They, our, our human parents, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines for us our, for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. What human parents did was what they thought was best in how they disciplined us. But God is not like a human parent. So back in the day, physical abuse as discipline may have seemed good at the time. Although, I mean, this stage in history, you kind of wonder how they thought it was good. But it was thought to be good at the time. But that was based on society and culture's limited prejudices and perceptions. But God isn't limited by this human understandings of discipline and training. So we need to understand that God's discipline of us, God's training instruction, is for our good. It is, for, it is good and it is for our good. So picture a physiotherapist or a music teacher challenging us to push ourselves beyond what is comfortable Yes, it's hard and it can be painful, but their instruction of us is in such a way that it actually lifts us and encourages us and strengthens us even as we are being strengthened, that it makes us feel more loved and more accepted. The work may be hard and painful, but it is good and it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace, 
as the author says. There's another misconception about, um, we have about this discipline I think is worth acknowledging, and I think we need to change in our understanding of God. In verse 7, the New International Version says, Endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. However, in the original letter, the word hardship isn't even there. It's not there. Translators decided to put that word in because they thought that this was about hardship. However, the original letter, the word hardship is not there. It simply says endure as hardship. (laughs) How is that for confusing? Telling you it's not there and then saying it. Endure as discipline. Endure as instruction, as training. Many of us have read that passage and thought it is saying that hardships in life, God is disciplining us. If I get cancer, boom, God's disciplining me. If I get sick, boom, God's disciplining me for something. He's trying to do something. Oh, my mental health issues, boom, God's disciplining me. This is a hardship and God's using it to discipline me. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job and on and on. We have this picture of God ah, ah, throwing these terrible, terrible things at us as if God wants pain and loss and death and suffering for us. But that is not who God is. There are many passages that talk about our relationship to those types of sufferings, but it's not here. So that's for another week. But here, if you look at this whole section, the author isn't talking about these kind of normal human hardships. The author doesn't even use the word hardship. What we are to endure as discipline, as challenging and sometimes painful instruction and training, is actually what comes as a result of our faith. It isn't simply the garbage that comes at life. It is what comes at us because of our faith. It is opposition from people who go against us because of our faith, who seek to shame us or to shame others for our faith. It is a sin that trips us up as we're running, that entangles our feet, that tries to trip us as we run. It is anything that weighs us down and hinders us, like putting on a backpack filled with bricks while running a marathon. These are the things that we need to endure, that we are called to persevere through faith, through in faith. And it takes great effort to train for this race. It is not easy to daily turn from sin, the sin that entangles us on our feet and trips us up. It is not easy to reject selfish and sinful patterns, thoughts and actions, to humbly repent and turn away from them when we trip or when we fall. Following Jesus may be the best thing, but it isn't a simply an easy coast. It is not easy to choose what is right and good when what is easier to choose is what is comfortable or pleasure-seeking. It is not easy to create space to be still and to be silent before God, to give up our times in our week to gather with others to worship or for prayer or for service. It is not easy to have friends and family look at you awkwardly thinking that you're strange for what you believe. But like all training when we start in small ways, now, I think in this image is good, if we, if we go from nothing to trying to, you know, lift 500 pounds, that is a, also a terrible picture of <laughs> discipline. In all training, we start in small ways uh, that our muscles of faith and perseverance 
can endure, but will push us to grow and to strengthen more and more. Even when we labor through a long uphill climb, Jesus is there before us. He's leading us. He's strengthening us. He's loving us and surrounding us with others who have gone this way before us, cheering us on in the life of faith. Faith is hard and requires discipline and requires intent. But praise God, we have Jesus always before us, the author and perfecter of our faith. Praise God that we are surrounded by others who have gone before us, cheering us on. Praise God that by the Holy Spirit, we are given the strength that we need for today to endure what is before us. And that God is training us like a loving father so that we would be able to come through this race to the end and be in God's presence to find righteousness and peace and healing. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to fix our eyes on you, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, so that we may not go weary and lose heart, but that we may be strengthened in our feeble arms and our weak knees, and that when we cross that finish line, we may find healing, righteousness, and peace in you. Amen.